On today's episode, Ashley shares the heartbreaking story of the Coleman family murder. Welcome to Crime Bar. Well, okay, hello. Hey. <laughs> Good afternoon, Ash. How have you been? It's been so long since I've seen you last. I know. I think it's been eight minutes. And I literally asked Brett, where's Ashley? <laughs> <laughs> I is here. Yeah, just in our little room. Right here, right here. So what's up with you? What do you want to talk about? Uh, I want to talk about your crime. Okay. I you got a good one. Okay. I yeah. do think it's pretty good. <laughs> if I do say so if myself, I, do I say so pretty myself. much nailed it. <laughs> I didn't commit the crime, but I did write about it. So That's good to hear. Um, so I am doing the story of Chris Coleman. Do you know that Abs- one? Do not know. Okay. Just based off that name, I don't know. So I got all of this information from an episode of Web of Lies, season two, episode 11. I don't even know what that show was. Wait, what's it, it called came- again? Web of Lies. Web of Lies. Okay. You can get it on um, like Prime Video and then... Uh, there's other YouTube videos that I use as reference and a few articles and they're all listed on the website. Cool. So I, I don't expect you to, but I'm going to ask anyways. Yeah. What's up? <laughs> what's up? What's up? What's, what's up? up girl? <laughs> give it to me. Do you know who Joyce Meyer is? Can you give me more info on her? I don't know her by the name. Okay. What's she all, do? That's, that's all you got to say. What's her deal? Okay. So she's a very famous televangelist. She is the CEO and lead pastor in one of the largest Christian ministries in the world, Joyce Meyer Ministries. It's like Joel Olstein or whatever his name is. She is basically the female version of Joel Osteen. Yeah. Yeah. So you and I obviously did not grow up in the world of evangelism and mega churches and all that stuff. But obviously um, my husband Brett did. did. So I'm somewhat familiar and I... Binged Righteous Gemstones. I was going to say, we've so seen Righteous Gemstones and know everything that, yeah, we need to know. I, I think it makes us <laughs> experts, in, in my opinion. Yeah, correct. So I asked Brett, do you know who she is? And he laughed and was like, oh, yes, of course I do. Yeah. So she is a female pastor in a male-dominated field, and that's just not really a role that most evangelicals want a woman to be in. So he kind of explained that like, just her being a pastor was unconventional, much less a famous one. And he was like, I honestly don't even know how she managed to do it. Her career as a pastor just sort of contradicts the general, like conservative evangelical mindset of, you know, like men are the heads of the households, men are leaders in church and politics and their communities. And men are most definitely the ones that God taps to spread his word from the pulpit. Like men are the stars of the show. And then women are expected to spread his word behind the scenes in more of a supporting role. But Joyce is a very strong woman. She's a charismatic leader. She has a massive following. Brett said that she wears the pants in her marriage. (laughs) I love that Brett knows that. Yeah. So she's like defied the odds by becoming an icon in this evangelical world. And I was like, wow, I wonder why she's like, oh yeah, I was like, I wonder why she's like the exception then. And he laughed and was like, well, I have seen in my experience that many people in the evangelical church tend to bend the rules when it works out in their favor. And then he goes, I mean, God's favor. God's favor, <laughs> if you will. So even though she is successful in her field, she still has plenty of haters who don't want a woman in that role. Ugh. And like all mega church pastors, she gets heavily criticized for her income and her extravagant lifestyle that she can afford because of the way she's profiting off of her followers. These mega churches often do. Yeah. Homegirl has a multi-million dollar net worth. Wow. She owns a private plane. The headquarters for her ministry is worth $20 million. Choice. She owns multiple luxury cars, many multi-million dollar homes. She signed a book deal for like $10 million. Her and her husband have a combined income from her ministry of over $1.4 million a year. But after a lot of, and they don't pay taxes. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. 
Um, but after a lot of public outcry and being heavily probed by the FBI and IRS, she reduced their incomes like pretty significantly. But like even so, like they're still doing really they're good. doing well. Yeah. So she's famous. She's wealthy. She's working in a role that people don't want her to be in. Nobody likes how she's earned her money. So she's certainly going to attract threatening people, loony people, aggressive people, but also just people who are like in awe of her, like because people want to be close to her. They want to come into physical contact with her because her followers believe that she herself has been tapped by God to do his work. And that's a very very holy shit to be in the presence of well i can i can see how she would attract a lot of obsessive Mm -hmm. personality types because Mm -hmm. of that yeah so she needs a full-fledged security detail like you have an understanding of how big she is yeah no absolutely so this other person in the story chris coleman Mm -hmm. chris was born march 20th 1977 so he's a pisces he grew up in Illinois in that whole evangelical world. Like both of his parents were pastors and coincidentally his parents were like lifelong friends with Joyce Meyer and her family. Okay. So Chris graduates high school. He is serving in the Marines and he meets this super cute girl serving in the Air Force named Sherry. Sherry Ann Weiss was born in Chicago on July 3rd, 1977. So she's a cancer. It's a cancer. Okay. Um, Two she- sensitive humans. <laughs> Yes, very much so. She grew up mostly in Chicago, but then after her parents' divorce, she spent the rest of her adolescence and high school years like in Tampa with her dad. Mm -hmm. And after meeting Chris, her friend Jessica said that Sherry told me when she first saw him, she just immediately knew, this is the guy I want to be with. I want to be with him for the rest of my life. When you know, you know. When you know, you know. Uh, Sherry was very bubbly and outgoing. She's described as a real spitfire that everyone got along with and... During the time when she met Chris, I mean, she was like 21. So mm-hmm. she's pretty young. She's wild, like a wild horse that can't be tamed. <laughs> well, yeah. So then three months into dating, a little whoopsie happens. Oh, whoopsie daisy. <laughs> she's pregnant. Baby. Sherry grew up Catholic and her family wasn't super religious, whereas Chris grew up in an evangelical world where having sex before marriage was just unacceptable much less having kids like Mm -hmm. that was really bad so they elope they do that whole courthouse thing they don't tell anyone they don't invite anyone it's like a shotgun wedding but they do it before anyone can like pull out their shotgun kind of thing so after their wedding ceremony is when chris brings sherry home to meet his family his family didn't even know he was dating anyone so it was like surprise surprise not only did i meet someone but now we're married and we're having a baby yeah Catch up, everybody. Yeah. So Chris's dad, Ron, said that after learning Sherry is pregnant prior to getting married, he said, quote, they had messed around too early in life, and so they just wanted to make it right. (laughs) Messed around, fooled around. Obvious. I'm not going to give you, like, a sex ed lesson, but obviously. (laughs) I thought that's what I was here for. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, both Chris and Sherry are responsible for having sex before marriage. So they're both responsible for this accidental pregnancy. They had the sex. (laughs) But Chris's parents believed Sherry trapped him. They didn't approve of her and believed that she was a bad influence because the first time they met her, she was wearing short shorts and had a tattoo. And that just wasn't someone they pictured Chris being with. Just wasn't sitting right with them. Yeah. So Sherry gives birth uh, to their first son, Garrett. And then two years later, they have another son named Gavin. And Sherry becomes a stay-at-home mom. She's obviously the same person, but she had her babies very young. And Mm -hmm. she's a mom now, so her priorities shift. Your world changes. Um, Basically, I say that because Chris claims later she got boring. But it's like she, you know. Okay, Chris, I bet you were a real spitfire fun Uh, guy to hang out with. I know. So her in-laws also really pressured her. Like on, yeah, her in-laws had really pressured her on um, religion. So after having her kids she's now a born again christian and she gets really involved in church and organizing events and family functions and so forth so she just tries to become the perfect wife yeah because she loves her husband and she loves her kids and like her family's all that really matters to her kind of thing so ron his uh chris's dad he said that chris would have preferred to stay in the marines for life but Bill Clinton's scandal with Monica Lewinsky turned him off from serving his country under a president who would do something like that. So, because okay. he's turned off from uh, 
yeah. making a career of being in the Marines. He leaves okay. and he reconnects with Joyce and he gets a job working like security detail in her ministry. And she's known him since he was a little boy. Like yeah. she's known him his whole life. Family friend. Uh, he's starting a family. And so she kind of goes on a limb and she gives him a job. And um, after a Roughly 10 years, he's worked his way up to the head of her entire security team. He's also tasked with the job of completely revamping her whole security detail. He is in charge of every security aspect of her professional and personal life. He's with her almost all the time. He coordinates the security on all of her travels and all of her church services where there's, you know, like... A mega church is like a football stadium. Mm -hmm. Like it's that big. Yeah. So that's just what she does for a living is stand in a football stadium yeah. on stage. Public speaking. And everyone is, you know, staring at her. So he has a massive job to keep her safe. Of course. You know? Yeah. It's like taking care of the, the present. <laughs> and he's really good at it. Like he's really, really good at his job. He he literally makes over $100,000 a year. Well, you know, that makes sense that you're protecting a human being's life. You're doing a good job. I, I, I get that. Yeah. That's a well-earned salary. But also like living in Illinois, making that kind of money. Like oh, that you're, goes, you're a baller. It goes far to say the least. So Chris and Sherry buy this beautiful home right on a lake. It's in a really nice neighborhood in Columbia, Illinois. And so even though her ministry was based in Missouri, more often than not, Joyce traveled, uh, whether it be domestically or internationally, to speak at other churches and events and stuff. So Chris went with her wherever she went. This means he spent more time away than he does at home. And when she traveled to other countries, she was often coming into contact with people or like stepping into environments where she was despised for simply being a, woman. a female. Yeah. Much less a female pastor, which was scandalous, I guess. So there was a lot of stress and pressure on Chris to keep her safe while they're out on the road. And Sherry told her friends that the first year that he worked for Joyce in this new role, he was away on business 265 days out of the first year. Okay. So he's that, never home. that means on average, he's home like maybe one week a month. Like it, That's tough on a marriage. So when he was promoted to this job, Garrett and Gavin are like, Nine, okay. nine, 10, 11, something like that. So they notice his absence is what I mean. Of course. And his travel schedule resulted in major issues within their marriage. Like she, Sherry is sick of being alone. She's sick of essentially being a single mom. And she resents how little time he gets to spend with her kids. And he, and he, he resents that too. He doesn't like yeah. being away from his kids. Well, she didn't sign up for that. So she no. probably feels a little betrayed. Yeah. And the boys, they were the kind of kids, like, they just, they made this um, homemade calendar that they put on the fridge, oh. and they'd keep track of how many days until dad comes home again. Just sweet and children. Then, and then how many days that he's going to be home, like, for how oh, long. Yeah. So Garrett and Gavin, they were really good kids with very bubbly personalities. They're just, like, standard little boys. Like, mm -hmm. Garrett was quieter. His personality was a little bit more like Chris. And Gavin was a pistol. His personality was much more like Sherry. They just worship their dad and they love sports and they were happiest when they could just throw a ball around in the yard with Chris, like that kind of thing. So they're just very normal. Sherry was a really, really sweet person and everyone described her as being very likable and yeah. sweet. But if you like did anything against her kids, Crossed this her. crazy like mama bear would just come out. Like her family, her kids especially that was all that mattered to her. So you could she like sounds great. not mess with her kids in any capacity. Mm -hmm. Their friends and family said that they just overall, they seem like a very normal and happy family. And that definitely above all else, Chris and Sherry love their sons more than anything. And they were both really good parents. And Chris is in that really like unfortunate place of wanting to provide for his family. And he really enjoys his job and all that. But the job takes him away from his family. So it's like, yeah, double rock in a hard place. Yeah. They made an effort to maximize their family time whenever they could. Like they'd vacation in Florida every year where Sherry was from. Like her best friend, Tara, still lived in Tampa. So they'd always take a trip there to spend time together. But those moments of like time off were very few and far in between. And the stress of being apart and the pressure Chris is under at work takes a really big toll on all of them. Mm hmm. Joyce and her family and honestly her whole team rely on him to keep them all safe and alive. So it's just he has major pressure. A lot of pressure. And then part of his job, he had to go through all of her hate mail and the like all of the death threats that mm -hmm. she would receive. Like it was part of his job to 
know what kind of threats they were always dealing with. So he would have to go through like vile, horrible mail with a fine tooth comb and read every single one and like keep what track do I of take, everything. What do I take seriously? What is what serious? Do I what is on? it? Who keeps sending stuff? Yeah. Who, who's just doing it once? That kind of thing. So by October of 2008, their marriage is very rocky and Chris is really unhappy. He's really spread thin. But also, you know, Chris starts actually hating his job and resenting Joyce, not just because it takes him away from his family, but, you know, granted his parents are also evangelical pastors, but they aren't televangelists. So they're, you know, they're just a little bit more like run of the mill. Chris said to a friend, these hardworking people who follow her, they make $50,000 a year and they'll write her a check for $10,000. It's a crime. So, He really judged her and he began to look down on her for essentially using belief systems to con the hardworking lower class who hung on her every word, you know, which is uh, totally valid. I completely agree with that. (laughs) But so then on top of that, you have to comprehend that her life and the lives of those around her are literally in his hands. They are his responsibility, but now he's resenting all of them. So unhappy and resentful is putting it lightly basically and even though he travels a lot he's actually pretty isolated on the road because outside of working hours he would just be alone in his hotel room so he's getting miserable kind of like miserable Stir crazy. You know? yeah so when joyce has an event in tampa sherry told chris like he needs to reach out to the friends there they have a lot of friends there that they visit all the time try to socialize try to have fun like you deserve a break and uh her you know, her best friend Tara is there. So she had asked her like, please, like if you guys do anything this weekend, try to include him. He really needs to socialize. What and a just, good wife. Yeah. And I think Tara did. She like invited him to like a sporting event or something. So he got a little bit of socializing in. And after that trip, he comes back and he's scheduled to be home for like two full months for oh, the wow. holidays. Oh, wow. What a treat. Yeah. So Garrett and Gavin are ecstatic and Sherry's happy that their dad is back, but things are so strained between them that she and Chris kind of agreed that maybe they should consider getting a divorce. Like it was just really, really bad. So Chris goes to Joyce Meyer for advice. Yeah. And she's like, well, maybe before going so far as divorcing, maybe try counseling. So they start counseling and that seems to improve a little, like improve things a little bit. But then something super upsetting happens that's completely unrelated to their marriage problems. On the evening of November 14th, 2008, Chris is about to leave work to go home when he notices a weird thing in his email. Hmm. Somebody from an account called destroychris at gmail.com sent him an email with the subject title, Chris's family, they are dead. Oh. In the email read, tell Joyce to stop preaching the bullshit or Chris's family will die. If I can't get to her, I will get someone close to her well now it makes me wonder if it's someone that they know because how would someone publicly know his name if he was just a head of security or is it that's a good question i I don't think i don't know that that would have been a like private yeah thing i'm sure it would be easy to figure out access to yeah if you wanted it sure i think so so uh that's upsetting (laughs) Uh, deeply but i think he's like a little bit desensitized used to it probably yeah so it is new for him to be targeted, but that's all the email said. So that's not really anything to go off of. And so he sort of dismisses it. And also as the head of her security who goes through things like this all the time, he knows that sometimes people just send vile things and it's sort of like a one-off. Like nobody intends to like- You should go to jail for even saying something like um, that. Like yeah. if that's you're capable of it, yeah. no. So then a few days later, he gets to work and he checks his email and there's another threat from destroychris at gmail.com. Yeah. This one says, if Joyce doesn't give this person's money back, they will start to kill those around her, starting with Chris and his family. And the thing about this letter that really sets off alarm bells for him and actually is it causes him to go to the police is that this person explained that they knew Chris's travel schedule and alluded to killing his family while he was away. Then they listed the dates and the details of all of his upcoming trips. 
So he goes to the police. He reports it. The police said that uh, when he reported it, he seemed much more fearful for his wife and kids than for his own safety. Like he felt. Because he's not a threat. He's not being threatened. His family is. Mm, yeah, I guess so. I guess that's true. I, I also kind of was like, oh, it's a macho guy. He's like, oh, don't oh, worry about me. Yeah. Like that's how I took it. But that's true. They're only me scared. About Chris, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> so um, Chris has to tell Sherry because like what else is he going to do? This is like a really dark and scary aspect to his job that he doesn't take home with him they don't talk about it but now he literally his wife and kids are being to. targeted so they've got to talk about it and she's understandably really upset so because of like his status in the community being so connected to Joyce Meyer who's like a superstar mm-hmm. the police agree to increase the patrol in Chris and Sherry's neighborhood and obviously, Chris is going to be there for like the next month. So they don't get too freaked out with it. Like she feels better with him being there, you know? Yeah. So a month later, in December of 2008, Sherry learns that during that October trip to Tampa, Chris cheated on her. Yeah. Don't love that. No. <laughs> Nothing sets Anna <laughs> off faster than <laughs> cheaters. Than a cheating man or a woman. Yeah, yeah. any cheater. Mm. So Sherry's friend, Jessica, I think I mentioned her earlier. She said that she remembers being over at the house and Sherry confessed to her that she had seen explicit images on Chris's cell phone that he and the other woman had been sending to each other. Mm-mm. And she had heard Chris talking to her on the phone. What a So Sherry asks, of- you want to see who my husband's having an affair with? And she shows her Tara's Facebook account, her best friend, Tara, that she had asked. Shut the front door. Mm-hmm. I literally, when you said that, take care of my husband when you're, I was like, I don't trust this Tara chick. (laughs) I'm not even kidding. Yeah. I tried to write it in a way that felt very casual. You did. Cause you're like, yeah, I went to a sporting bar, whatever. I'm like, very chill, very casual. Yeah. You're being too chill about (laughs) this. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I always catch them. Um, And then Sherry, obviously she just, she was so mad when she first started telling Jessica and then she just breaks down and sobs. This is her best friend since high school. They visit together on family vacations, family vacations every year. Sherry herself asked Tara to include Chris when he was in town to try to lift his spirits. And then they both end up betraying her. It's like foul. It's so, so foul, terrible, gross, disgusting. Yeah. Two thumbs down. But Jessica said that Sherry had already made up her mind. She had forgiven Chris and she was more determined than ever to keep her family together and strengthen their marriage. So whether this was how she was going to react regardless, I don't know. But you have to remember, she was dealing with a really scary stalker who was threatening to kill her and her husband and her children. And they were really fresh into counseling, which had been helping them a lot. So I think all of that other stuff combined may have just caused her to look at the affair through maybe a different lens. Like her family is being threatened with death. Yeah. And... She is really betrayed and devastated by the affair, but the other things going on just made her more determined to keep her family whole. So she tells Chris that she's going to stand by him. She should get a man that deserves her. I agree with you. I agree with you, Anna. Yeah, kick Chris out. Yeah. So now the holidays are over. Chris is back to traveling a ton, and Sherry is on her own with the kids again, and they still continue to get threatening emails. She started to get really paranoid. She asks her friend Jessica to like stay at the house with her and the boys when Chris is gone. She just would feel better if there's like another adult in the house. And Sherry actually would keep a handgun in her nightstand and she taught Jessica how to use it in case maybe something happened when Sherry was out of the house and she wanted Jessica to be able to protect herself. Mm -hmm. So a few months go by. The emails come very sporadically. Then something really scary happens. During one of those brief stays at home between trips, Chris came inside and showed Sherry a threatening letter that had been left in their mailbox. No stamp, no return address, which means it was hand-delivered. It says, fuck you, deny your God publicly or else. No more opportunities. Time is running out for you and your family. So they both freak out. Chris goes out and buys some security cameras and he installs them on the like exterior all pointing out to try to like he's determined he's going to catch this person on camera Mm -hmm. and like end this once and for all but he also goes to his neighbor across the street a guy named justin barlow 
Justin is coincidentally a detective with the Columbia Police Department. So he's like, okay, I'm going to throw up some cameras too, and I'll point them at your house. So between both sets of cameras, we will find this person. Like We will get to the bottom of it. Like, how awesome is that? Yeah, like, great. What are the chances that your family's being threatened? You don't have a choice but to leave them for weeks at a time, but your neighbor directly across the street is a detective. Yeah, <laughs> you very know? convenient. Yeah. So this was really relieving to Chris. He was really grateful. And Justin told him, you know, living across the street, I can respond much faster than the police department. So if you're ever worried or you need anything or she's scared or anything, just call my cell phone. I'll be right there. Mm -hmm. Like I'm, I'm here. Feel free. Don't like he was very generous about it. And then suddenly the threats just all stop. Completely. I feel like. I feel like I'm feeling something and I'm really curious if I'm correct. Okay. Ah! So everything gets better. Chris, um, the travel sort of dies down a little bit. He spends a lot more time at home. Things seem to be smoother in their marriage. The kids are obviously so much happier that their dad doesn't travel as much anymore. And then obviously the psychopath isn't threatening them now. So life is good and feels normal again, but it was short lived. Mm hmm. In April of 2009, they get another threatening letter, another hand delivered to their mailbox. It says, time's up. Your worst nightmare is about to happen. I will kill them all while they sleep. Oh, my God. Throw up. So Chris pours over all the footage from their security cameras. He said that he and Sherry had looked at all the footage and they could see the outline of a person. But... It's nighttime. The stalker is wearing like bulky dark clothing and their face is completely hidden by shadow. And so you can't tell the gender or the age, nothing. And Chris said that the he hadn't finished setting up the whole security system yet. And so he was still waiting on pieces. To, components. I, components to yeah. it. So basically he said that he could like rewind a little bit, but he couldn't save the videos. But he said that he and Sherry saw it and they, they were both really freaked out about mm -hmm. it. So... I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what to say about that. I don't understand technology. Anyways, this letter led police to believe that the stalker was really serious this time and was like going to do something. So they have patrols drive by the Coleman house like multiple times a day. And then that neighbor, Justin, is very much on the lookout. He's paying very close attention to their house. He's always checking his cameras, stuff like that. But his cameras don't catch anything. It's just like just the normal like comings and goings of the family or the boys in the front yard yeah. or whatever just normal things it doesn't catch any suspicious people no Activity. suspicious cars like nothing at all uh like for example on the evening of may 4th 2009 justin's cameras show chris outside with the boys throwing the baseball around in the front yard and then the next day around 5 45 justin's camera shows chris getting into his vehicle and driving away then around 6 45 a.m chris calls justin's cell phone He's like, I left the house at 5.45 this morning to go to the gym, and I usually call Sherry to make sure that she's up getting the kids ready for school. But I've already called a few times, and she's not answering. I'm on my way back, but I'm still a little ways away, so can you please go knock on the door and make sure everything's okay? I left at 5.45. Mm -hmm. So Justin like, jumps into action. He gets his badge, his gun, his handcuffs, radio, flashlight, and he calls dispatch on his walk over to send another officer as backup. So he's at the door, he's knocking, he announces himself, he's peeking through the windows. No one's answering, no one seems to be inside, there's no movement, there's no lights, nothing. So another cop shows up and he walks around to the backyard and he finds um, like a window screen was all bent and busted up and laying on the grass and the basement window is wide open. So they call for more backup. Yeah. When the third cop arrives, they enter the home from the basement. Nobody's down there. But they notice that all of the connective wires from the security camera are missing. Like someone has violently ripped them out and removed them completely. So Terrifying. the cameras are totally they don't work. useless. Yeah. They walk upstairs, guns drawn, they announce themselves and no one responds. And so they're, you know, they're in the basement, they're coming up the stairs and he the door like to the main level was closed. He said they were like halfway up the steps and they are overwhelmed with this unbelievable powerful smell of spray paint Ooh! so they open the door and it is completely dark and quiet inside 
And they start looking around and they realize every wall is covered in bright red, chaotic, threatening messages. So 13 minutes after placing that call to Justin, Chris pulls into the driveway and he runs up to the house and they're, they're on the main level still, the cops. So Justin stops him in the doorway and he's like, don't come inside. So Chris is like standing in the doorway. He's like frozen. He didn't object or ask any questions. He just said something about being there, like leaving at 545. And he turns around and he walks out and he sits down outside. So the cops start to go upstairs. They find more spray paint messages on the stairwell and then in the hallways upstairs. Do you know what the messages said? Some of them were like, I'm always watching or punished or now you've paid and you knew this was coming. Got it. So they enter the first bedroom at the top of the stairs and they find the body of 11-year-old Garrett in his bed, strangled to death. His skin was already stiff and cold to the touch and he had distinct ligature marks around his neck. In the next bedroom, they find the body of 9-year-old Gavin in bed. He's been killed the same way as his brother and his skin and body is also showing signs of stiffness. But the only difference between the two scenes is that in Gavin's room, the killer had spray-painted the words fuck you on Gavin's bedding and even on his body a little bit. Oh, God, that's just... And I mean, insulting doesn't even capture it fully. It's It's very degrading. It's it's degrading, yeah. Mm -hmm. In the master bedroom, they find the naked body of 31-year-old Sherry Ann Coleman, who was also strangled to death. She has two black eyes bruises and scrapes all over her suggesting that she put up a really hard fight and like the boys her body is showing signs of rigor mortis there had been long dark hairs like draped across gavin's arm which police later determined belonged to sherry oh okay so they think that she was strangled first and that some of her hair got stuck like in the ligature and then was unintentionally transferred to gavin when he was killed got it so They discover this, and then the cops hear Chris enter the house and yell out, so they run downstairs to stop him, Mm -hmm. and they lead him back outside. They break the news to him, and he just breaks down. He's crying. He literally collapses, and he's, like, laying in the fetal position. He's like, I think I'm going to throw up. I think I'm going to throw up. But he made no attempt to go back in the house, and he didn't ask how they died. So by this time, there are several more cops, fire trucks, an ambulance, and so forth. Like, it's now the streets just shut down and crawling with people. Chris is sitting on a gurney inside the ambulance. Like, he's not hurt. They just were giving him a place to sit down. Yeah. And there's a cop sitting next to him, and they're, they're talking. They're both calm. And the cop notices Chris has scratches all over his forearms. So Chris looks down and realizes that he has scratches Mm -hmm. and that the cop is looking at them. At those scratches. And suddenly Chris explodes. He starts screaming and crying and he's violently like punching the gurney and like trying to lift it and throw it. Putting up a He's putting on this big show of emotion like he can't handle. What's happening? The reality of his family all dying. And then, you know, as soon as the news (laughs) broke... That the family of Joyce Myers, head of security, has been literally murdered in their beds. Their street is just crawling with news cameras. Of course. And I don't know why, but Joyce showed up to the crime scene at some point, which also just added to like major media frenzy. Like this just doesn't happen in a place like Columbia. And it certainly doesn't happen to somebody whose job is to literally ensure safety. Yeah, like just the odds of it seem wild. So Chris goes to the police station and he's in an interview room. They need to get a statement so they can piece together like all the details of what happened, uh, like what happened the night before, all that Mm -hmm. stuff. And it's all on YouTube if you want to see it. It's like annoying. (laughs) It's like I hated watching it. Yeah. The entire interview. And I mean this. Did you feel phony? Oh, I. He was a whiny little bitch. Oh, okay. He literally by a word he was saying whined. He 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 was like a little <laughs> kid mm-hmm. who was just like this didn't get their way. Yeah, whiny little bitch. But so he's whining the whole time, and if there's a question that he doesn't want to answer, he just like oh, suddenly he's overcome with emotion and he breaks down and he can't even speak, kind of thing. Your uh, personality shift towards Chris is is uh, uh, giving me ideas. <laughs> <laughs> so the cops, they do a phenomenal job interrogating him. Like they did a really good job. It. Yeah. Chris tells the cops that the night before he and Sherry had watched a movie and she fell asleep in his arms on the couch. And he says, it was awesome. <laughs> 
what married man says that about his wife falling asleep after they're not doing well it was sick yeah he said she then went out to bed and he walked around the house making sure that all the doors and windows were locked and he said that like that's normal he does that every night but the cops are like hmm that's odd because the basement window was left unlocked and wide open yeah and unbeknownst to chris they had already determined that there was no forced entry someone had opened the window then removed the screen bent it up a bit and then threw it into the yard if yeah. his family's being regularly treated uh, uh, threatened with death he just volunteers that he had checked all the doors and windows like he does every night a ground floor window being left wide open is a pretty big oversight. Yeah, you'd think. Yeah. And then the cops, one of these cops interrogating them is Justin Barlow, the neighbor from across the street who found the bodies. They ask him, how'd you get those scratches on your arm? And Chris is like, oh, um, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure. Actually, I think I got them from earlier when I got upset and punched the pillows in the ambulance. I think you saw me get upset. You were there. You saw. Yeah. And then he goes, actually, I think I got them yesterday when I was doing work on the roof. And then he goes. Oh, (laughs) totally. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah, I believe you. So then he says, I'm freezing. So they give him a blanket. Instead of wrapping himself up, he only covers his forearms. He's an idiot through and through. Oh, honey, just wait. Okay, I'm waiting. They ask him if he's ever cheated on his wife. And he acts surprised and he says, no, never. And that they have a really good marriage. He said they did have like a minor bump a few months back and they went to counseling for a while, but they realized that they just had standard communication issues. And after working on things, it was, quote, pretty awesome between them. Once again, awesome. Yeah, he's using that word too much. Yeah. And they're like, okay, okay. So you don't have a relationship outside your marriage. Okay. The thing is. (laughs) And then Chris is like, well... Tara in Florida. I have talked to her a ton lately. She's just a friend, someone I talk to. And they're like, okay, have you have you ever done anything with Tara that Sherry wouldn't approve of? And he casually goes, um, yeah, like some of the conversations probably. So they ask, would you mind sharing that? Like, what did you talk about that your wife wouldn't approve of? He's like, oh, they're pretty awesome. <laughs> and he goes, uh, you know, uh, just some sexual type stuff. He admits that they sexed a lot. They both send graphic videos and nude photos back and forth, but he claims it's just a friendship that isn't really an affair or anything. Yeah, no, of course not. As Chris is being interviewed, obviously on the other side of the glass, there are cops listening, you know? Yeah, like live shaking other. their heads. So as they're interviewing him and he's saying these things about Tara, cops outside call the police in Tampa, Florida, and they send cops to go interview Tara. So now she's getting interviewed at the same time that he is. So there's no time for him to really call her and no. then be like, do this, do that. Not at all. I mean, at this point, Tara probably doesn't even know. Oh, you no, know? of course like, not. It's, it's only been a couple of hours yeah. since it even happened. Yeah. So, um, so she's being interviewed. She admits immediately that she and Chris have been having an affair since November of 2008, a month after he saw her in Florida in the same month that his family started receiving threats. She said they were in a very serious relationship. Chris intended to divorce Sherry in order to marry Tara because they were in love. She showed them the matching wedding bands that she and Chris bought and said that she wore hers all the time. And whenever he was with her, aka not with his real family, he would wear that ring in place of the wedding ring that Sherry had given him. She should feel really good about her life choices. She sounds great. Yeah. She told them that when Chris traveled, he would often fly her to join him on these trips and that they had most recently been in Hawaii together like a month or two prior to this. She explained that she had become really tired of waiting around for Chris to divorce his wife. So her best friend. Yeah. He had always promised that he would do it and then he would find some reason to drag his feet. So Tara admits that in the last few weeks, she had really... Like she had lost all patience and she had really amped up the pressure on him to make moves. And Chris was starting to get like very flustered and frustrated Mm -hmm. because of it. She shows them a text message that Chris had sent her the night before telling her that he intended to serve Sherry divorce papers the following morning, the morning her body is found. Then she stops and she asks, do I need an attorney? 
so then the cops get like super suspicious because they're like well you know only guilty people need attorneys or whatever dumb shit like that Mm -hmm. and i was just like what the hell that is so stupid i could get pulled over for like obviously speeding and i'd be like i want to speak to my attorney yeah (laughs) Yeah, yeah. you should just get a phone call you should never talk to cops alone I don't care if you are 100 million percent innocent. You have to be your own advocate and recognize that cops don't always have your best interests at heart. They yeah. are trying to get to the bottom of a story and they could create a story where there isn't one. And so this I did not know. Have you not seen Making a Murderer on Netflix? No, remember? You haven't seen that? I've, I, wait, no, I saw season one, but I did not see season I did not see season two, but I watched it when it first came out in like 20 friggin' 15, 2016. Did you ever watch those, that other show, like confession tapes or whatever on Netflix about how all, oh dude, you'll, after you watch it. Always have a lawyer. Always. Oh, there is no reason for you to talk to cops by yourself, especially if they are asking about a very serious crime. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, you could be completely innocent. Yeah. And you should still have a cop. Okay. Or you should not not a cop. Yeah. You should still have an attorney. Yeah. Okay. Um, that I can do. Yeah. So I just that irked me because you know it's not true. We don't know at this point if she's involved or not, and so it's not. She, they're asking her about her best friend, the wife of her boyfriend, being murdered. I of I you mean, would want a lawyer. I would, I would yeah. absolutely get a lawyer. I'd yeah. be like, I need three. Give me yeah, three yeah, lawyers. Yeah. That's the maximum I can have. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, the police tell Chris. We have officers interviewing Tara as we speak, and she's telling them this, and they give him like a whole rundown. So then he sort of admits to having a very brief affair with Tara. But, real quick. But he claimed that he'd been trying to end things for a while and that Tara just wouldn't accept it. He said she was becoming very obsessive and pushing him to divorce his wife, but he didn't want to, so it was causing a lot of stress for him. Crazy women. So he's basically alluding to like, Tara might be responsible for this because oh, she, she just yeah. wants Chris so bad. And I I hate like bullying people who don't like bullying looks. But if you see a picture of Chris, like I'm like, oh honey, no one is killing to be with you. <laughs> like, you know, like it's like Don't flatter yourself. No. He no. Well, his friggin' wife's best friend is betraying her, doing the ultimate betrayal by sleeping with him, so you must have something something about him. Yeah, I'll show you a picture later. Again, yeah, that will determine you, it. He doesn't, I, he doesn't at all. A lot of friends from, like mutual friends between Sherry and Tara, they said that Tara had always seemed to be jealous and envious of Sherry's her. life because Sherry had a very domesticated life. So and I had more to do with to her have, than And him. she seemed to have it made. Um, whereas Tara was like a cocktail waitress at strip clubs. She's sometimes she worked at casinos. She'd never been with just anybody. Never, yeah. It was just like different and like, not to say any of that's bad, but that was an example of their mutual friend saying like they had very different lives and Tara always wanted to settle down and have kids. And yeah, she wanted what Sherry stuff. had. Yeah. So not as much to do with Chris and more to do with that. Or maybe, I don't know. Maybe she, maybe she, maybe Chris does it for her. I don't know. Yeah. But <laughs> He doesn't do it for me. (laughs) Breathe easy, Brett. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You can sleep tonight. So Chris sells this as a fling that didn't mean much to him, but meant way more to Tara. Meanwhile, Tara is literally at the same time explaining to cops that Chris had expressed fear about their affair coming out because he would likely lose his job. Um, Also, Joyce Meyer is interviewed as well, and her interview is on YouTube. And they ask her whether or not Chris would have been fired if he had gotten a divorce. And she said, like, not necessarily. She reviews that on a case-by-case basis. And plenty of her employees had gone through divorce that didn't impact their their jobs with her or anything like that. However, if she had learned that Chris was having an adulterous relationship, he would have likely been fired because that's something her ministry does not condone. Then the cops that were interviewing Sherry's friends... They all say immediately they think Chris is involved. They explain that Chris didn't try hiding his affair from Sherry and that he seemed really surprised that she chose to stay with him after learning about it. So when you think about it, his girlfriend is pressuring him to get a divorce, but now suddenly his wife is determined not to divorce him. He knows that if he leaves Sherry, aka he's the one causing the divorce, uh, the truth will come out and he will lose his job. So 
he had been banking because he knew that other employees at, at Joyce Meyer Ministries, um, even when infidelity was involved, as long as you weren't the one cheating, if you got cheated on and got a divorce, you could keep your job. But if you Fair. if you were the one causing See ya. the divorce, then you were likely to be let go. So he was really hoping that Sherry would just lose her mind, leave him, then he'd be free to get a divorce and mm-hmm. quote start a relationship okay. with Tara kind of thing. So he was really banking on her to do that so that he could play the victim. Yeah. <laughs> so Tara is considered a suspect for just like a hot minute, but cops verify really quickly she was in Florida during the murders and there's no um, tech, like a, what's the word? Technology. There's no history of like text like, or anything that no, incriminate her? nothing like that. Yeah. Um, so paper trails. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no technology paper trail. Okay, yeah. whatever. You get what Technological. Technological <laughs> trails. Push up the glasses. <laughs> So even though all signs are starting to point to Chris, they still need to track down who has been sending his family death threats for months. So cops start going through every single threatening email and letter that has been sent to Joyce Meyer Ministries. Not just the one sent about Chris, but every single one sent to Joyce. Wow. So in the letters that Chris had received, they mention Joyce and their hate for her, but they don't threatened to harm her it's only threatening to harm chris and his family which is very suspicious it's weird yeah the cops actually tracked down across multiple states every person who sent hate mail to joyce and they interview all of them and they were all cleared as suspects in the coleman murders Mm -hmm. then they find that the destroy chris at gmail.com address was created moments before the first email was sent and that the email was sent from Chris's IP address. I was going to say IP address. Yes, yeah. you can track that. Idiot. And then obviously from there, they can literally trace every single email back to Chris. All the threatening things yep. right back to him. They also discover through cell phone towers that on the morning of the 5th, that right after Chris had called Justin to check on his house, he had told him, I'm a few minutes away. You know, can you go over? Can you run over? And then they they find out through cell tower, like, records or whatever, he was, like, three minutes from the house, like, yeah. pulled over. Waiting for and the And then he he'd basically, like, drove up and down the highway, taking random exits, getting back on the highway and doing it again. To add to his route. To basically give them enough time to get into the house and find them. So what he was monster. he was three minutes away from the house. He claimed to Justin that he wasn't, that he was further from yeah. that. And then it took over 13 minutes for him to get back to the house after yeah. calling Justin. They also find that Chris did, he did leave his house at 545, but only two minutes after he left, he makes his first call to Sherry supposedly to wake her up, which is so weird because- He's if, never done that probably. Well, he said that it was very normal for him to get up really early like that and go to the gym. He would call her- wake her up and then she would so i guess instead of setting an alarm he would just wake her up to make sure she was getting the kids ready for school okay but what's weird is that he basically gets in his car drives away he's still on their road on their street and and then he calls her so if he needs to wake her up within minutes of him leaving for the gym why didn't he wake her up in person tap her on the shoulder it's really stupid yeah then the cops compare the spray paint writing with samples of chris's handwriting and they find that it's a total match. Yeah. And that he even commonly misspells the same words that were all misspelled in these threatening yeah, letters. Of course. So they take samples of the spray paint and they determine the exact brand and color. And no joke, they start asking around at different hardware stores in the area and actually find evidence and witness accounts of Chris buying the same exact spray paint three months before the deaths. So he's been planning this for a very long time. I think so. I think so. So remember, Chris repeatedly reminded everyone he left at 5.45 a.m. for the gym. He kept saying that and he kept telling the cops that it was normal for him to leave around that time and then call Sherry not too long after that to get her up and get the kids ready for school. But all three cops who had discovered the bodies had all checked for signs of life and verified that all three bodies were cold to the touch and exhibiting stiffness. So they've been dead for a very, not very long, but a while. Yeah. They said that um, the skin had already changed to like, it it sort of felt like, like what a dinosaur's skin would feel like, very rough and like calloused. So, and that just doesn't happen. I haven't touched any dinosaurs. Oh, okay. Well, the, the example that they used for dinosaurs was like um, 
things oh. you would you might touch in like a, a museum. Yeah, gotcha. Know, okay. <laughs> anyway, you so know the typical dinosaur scale on a <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know. So then I looked it up. Rigor mortis starts to set in approximately two to six hours after the death has occurred. It all depends on varying factors, but it is a minimum of two hours that the human body will show signs of stiffness. So even before the medical examiner weighs in and verifies the time of death, the detectives are already aware that Chris's family has been dead for a lot longer than the 45 minutes that he was out of the house. Of course. So the cops tell him in the interrogation that they believe Sherry and the boys were dead when Chris left for the gym. Mm -hmm. They ask him if Sherry was dead. And in a super annoying whine, he goes, no, she was alive. She was alive. She was laying, she was laying right there next to me. No. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, okay, well, we don't think that's the truth. And we have ways of proving the time of death. So we'll know soon enough. And he's all like, oh, I'm a little bitch boy. <laughs> don't look. How about yeah. you don't look? <laughs> yeah. So, and then autopsies confirmed that all three victims died at approximately 3 a.m., two hours and 45 minutes before Chris is seen leaving the house. How can he, I mean, I know he's, he's a, a sick piece of shit, but how are you comfortable being in your house for two hours and 45 minutes with your wife and your two children that you just murdered? I just don't understand that level of detachment. And the question that comes before that one, I mean, the intimacy involved of in strangling. strangling someone, it takes five to seven minutes yeah. to strangle someone it's to hard. death. You know, like with Sherry, she's a grown woman who put up a really visible fight. Yeah. So it probably took a lot longer. Of course. Then, you know, so let's say that's like 10 minutes of doing it with her. And then he's got to get up and then repeat it two more times to his children, children who are staring at him. And yeah. then two hours and 45 minutes goes by where he's writing all these crazy messages everywhere yeah. and, and it was then, the strangling that gave it away for me like when you said that i'm yeah. like no person that it would be gunshot stab i mean stabbing is really intimate mm -hmm. but being able to Any, anything physically close like that but especially skin, skin. strangulation yeah. yeah well they they believe that sh they strangled they were strangled with a type of rope or wire okay and i couldn't find this anywhere but i wondered if was it in the house? If it was the wire, the missing wires from the camera system. Because <gasps> they never found them. Oh, that's... <sighs> your brain's smart. Yeah. I wonder. But I didn't, I didn't find anything like that. Anyways. So Chris is interrogated for six hours, but they don't have enough to arrest him, so they let him go. The same week, a funeral service is held for Sherry and Garrett and Gavin. And while he's at the funeral service for his dead family... Chris texted Tara, I miss you. Then the day after this, neighbors reported that uh, people in the community, whether it be people they knew or just people in the neighborhood, neighbor, other neighbors, had created like a sort of like memorial outside of the Coleman's house, like yeah. with balloons and pictures. A lot of the neighborhood kids that had been friends with the boys had built like little Lego things uh, and like little toys. Yeah. They just, it was just, you know, your standard memorial. And then they saw Chris outside looking at all of it, looking at the cards and stuff, like picking things up and looking at it. And then he starts to collect all of it, dumps it in the garbage can, and then puts the cans out on the curb for a trash pickup. So he's not even hiding his psychopathy. No, no, no. no. So the police had taken, obviously, everybody's laptops and cell phones and all that stuff. And they discovered on Chris's laptop, he had a, like, very icky folder. Icky folder. It's, like, really icky folder containing very intimate details about Tara that, like, seemed kind of stalkerish. Like, written out? Yeah. The smell of her skin. Well, it's had, <laughs> the dip like... of her back. <laughs> it had, like, her ring size, her bra size, her jean size, her panty size... Her favorite perfumes, favorite flowers, her dog's birthday. Well, that could have been weird things so that he wouldn't forget or if he wanted to send her gifts. Yes. Things I think, like that. Yeah. Um, ideas about where they would get married. Um, a list of baby names for their future kids. And a link to a wedding registry that he and Tara had created together. It also had a note <laughs> that he wrote literally like a... 11-year-old girl writing in her diary. I hurt Tara. He wrote a note that says, the day Tara changed my life, 11-5-08. Okay, so all of this would be cute if it wasn't your your wife, your dead wife's best friend, and sure. you weren't married, and such and such and such. It would be kind of pathetic and weird, but it would be like, oh, I can see yeah. the cuteness of this. 
But the fact that he wrote that date, 11-508, that's a really crucial detail to note because only nine days later, Chris received that first threatening email. Yeah. And um, super gross and weird. They find weird. a nude photo of Tara on a laptop that belonged to Chris's dad, Ron. Ron couldn't explain that. And he stated that Tara, you have to understand, Tara is strong-arming Chris into being together she bought those rings she was the one doing all these things like with a registry and baby names and stuff so like this isn't on him what it comes down to is poor chris <laughs> this poor yes, guy this poor guy <laughs> he's like finally someone sees it <laughs> but then on sherry's phone they find a text message that she had sent to a friend of hers months before her death sherry tells her friend that chris is demanding a divorce He's told her he's never loved her and that she and the boys were getting in the way of not only his career, but also of God's will, because Chris believed that it was God's will that he be with Tara. Sherry texted her friend, literally, I'm saying this as a quote, if anything happens to me, Chris did it. <gasps> oh, so two weeks after the murders, Chris is arrested and charged with first degree murder. Oh. So it took two years. The trial's like not worth going into. It's just this trial, yeah. you know. But it took two years. On May 5th, 2011, on the anniversary of Sherry, Garrett, and Gavin's deaths, Chris was found guilty and convicted of three consecutive life sentences in prison. Good. Seven years later, in 2018, Chris did that thing that like all sane people do. Represented himself. He represented himself. Yeah. And he positioned the court for a new trial. Because he says he deserves a new trial on the grounds that his first one was unfair. <laughs> because I didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. During deliberations, the jury was accidentally provided a piece of evidence that had not been approved as evidence in the oh, trial. Okay. So basically, photos of Chris and Tara together were submitted as evidence. So the jury had seen these photos already. Yes. But during the deliber deliberations, when they were going over all of this evidence and looking at those photos, one of them flipped a picture over and realized that it was dated for October 21st, 2008. Oh. And both Chris and Tara had said that their relationship started well into November. Yeah, after so, the trip to Florida. So do you understand Chris's logic here? He's saying, and so that f finding that their relationship actually started weeks prior to the time that they both said, so they're both lying. Yeah. Chris is saying that because, you know, I don't know who it is, the, the lawyers, the court system, I don't know. Someone messed up and provided a piece of evidence that was not allowed in the trial to the jurors, which caught him in a lie, which led to them saying, well, if he can lie about that, Lie about can lie literally about anything. anything yeah and so they found him guilty so chris is saying because i got caught lying if if they hadn't caught me lying then maybe they wouldn't have found me guilty so i want a new trial he is all kinds of stupid yeah so a judge in um september of 2020 said he spent years going over reviewing the whole case and he says that he's very proud that the system did not fail sherry and garrett and gavin and justice was served in that Chris will not get a new trial. So he will spend the rest of his life rotting in prison. Good. Chris and his parents, Connie and Ron, have always maintained that he is innocent and that an intruder broke in and killed his family. And when he's asked about how guilty the affair makes Chris look, and okay, what I'm about to say, don't interrupt it because I know it's going to make you make me upset. It's going to make you so upset, but I want yeah. you to like listen to okay, it. I'll breathe through it. When he's asked about how guilty the affair makes Chris look, Ron waves it off and says, Tara was just meeting a need that Sherry at the time wasn't taking care of. I mean, every man has got his desires and every man has to be respected. It's built into every man. If, uh, you, if your wife doesn't respect you, then you're going to go find respect someplace else. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm not even done. I'm not even done. <laughs> and, when, and when he's asked to clarify if he's saying that Sherry was a bad wife, Ron says, just... At that short brief time, she had stepped back from doing her job as a wife. Ron is also so convinced that his son is innocent that he said, this makes me wonder if OJ really did it. Oh, 
<laughs> like, oh shut my God. up, Ron. Ron. Shut up. Put him in jail too. I don't want to hear anything from him again. Ron is a, a evangelical pastor. Oh, Ron. Yeah. She wasn't meeting her wifely duties. Mm-hmm. Therefore, she had it coming. No, he's saying that. The he, affair. He, well, no, he's he's just saying that just because he had an affair, because his wife was disrespecting him and that led him to having an affair, doesn't mean that he murdered his family. That's what he's trying to say. I get that. I just, yeah. I just have a lot of problems with it, I guess. Of course. Yeah. Let's all take a minute to breathe. Yeah. I don't think I like that. So after a long battle with the Coleman family, Sherry's mom was granted permission to have Sherry, Garrett, and Gavin reburied in a cemetery closer to her in her home uh, in Chicago. Her family had filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Joyce Meyer. They claimed that because she had canceled both Sherry and Chris at some point, she should have been able to prevent these murders, which is kind of a stretch. Like, I absolutely do not support people like Joyce Meyer. But like, who can predict if if someone's capable of killing their family with their bare hands? Also, let's remember... Joyce literally trust Chris with with her, her own life, with her own life, her family's life. Like yeah, he is in foolish. charge of keeping her safe. So why of, of yeah, all people? Silly, that's sillies. crazy. Yeah, she's not responsible for that at all. And obviously, luckily, other people rightfully agree. so. A judge dismissed that lawsuit, and you know nothing came from that. But not long after the murders, many friends of Sherry's created a domestic violence prevention charity called Sherry Ann and Her Boys. They wanted to raise funds to build a memorial in a popular park in Columbia and then create a little a, a boys little league team named after Garrett and Gavin. And then they wanted to use the rest of the funds to help combat domestic violence. Amazing. But after raising around $35,000, Sherry's friends decided to step down and hand over financial control to Sherry's brother. But after removing themselves, they realized all of the money went missing. So her brother claimed to have donated most of it. Okay. But the the places he claimed to donate it to have no record of receiving these donations and he has no proof that he has donated it. But I think there was a paper trail of him withdrawing cash. Yeah. So obviously then there's no trail of anything. And then in 2015, Illinois' attorney general filed a lawsuit against Sherry's brother for mishandling charity funds. Uh, but I couldn't find any more details on like what happened with that. So that's the very sad story of the Coleman family murder. Yeah. What a ride <laughs> that that was. Quite a ride. I felt yeah. angry. Yeah. A lot of it. A lot of anger. A lot of anger. Yeah. I think that if you are that type of man and you take out your family because God forbid you look like a bad man for the thing that you've done. I keep just being like, you're a skid mark. <laughs> you're well, a human skid mark. You're the thing scum is of that, the earth. Like you and I are not raised in a church. We're not raised with religion and that in religious guilt that some people struggle with on a daily basis. It's like, it's a whole yeah. other element that we can't understand. So I'm not, I'm not saying that in defense of him. I'm just saying. We don't understand that pressure. It's one of those things of like, they don't think. Beyond, beyond themselves that's like that bobby kent thing where um that other story i did where like those teenagers like just could not think beyond like themselves yeah. or come up with and some logical week. solution or anything like it's just there's family annihilators that aren't religious though and i'm just saying in I general totally that agree. whole thing yeah. is just you're uh, yeah and earth. i'm yeah i don't i didn't say it very eloquently but i'm in no way trying yeah but to they're religious yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what um it really reminded me of though is chris watts Oh, of course. I was going to make a joke about Chris's. Because I remembered, I mean, I don't remember the last time I, I watched it so long ago when it first came out, but that documentary about Chris Watts yeah. and his family, yeah. they show like a letter that his wife had had written to him that mm-hmm. she was like, had this renewed determination to like not give up on her marriage. Yeah. And she was, she loved him so much. And like, it was written with so much love and warmth. Yeah. And like optimism that they could work things out. But obviously to him, the dude who's banking on getting a divorce so he can date somebody else, that just made him feel trapped. So then he does something unforgivable. And I felt like that was the same thing with this Chris Coleman story where she, he was banking on her leaving him. And when she was like, you know what? No, I'm going to stay with you. We're going to work this out. 
like in her mind, she's probably thinking like, I'm doing this for my family. I'm doing this for the right reasons. Not knowing she is signing her own death warrant. After being like a true crime, like an avid follower of all of these stories, I have actually thought about the fact that if I were to, if I am to get married, I will tell my husband that if you have an affair, just leave and I'll keep my mouth shut. <laughs> I won't tell anyone. Just don't take me out. I have told Brett so many times. I was like, I don't care your reasoning. I don't care if you just don't like me. I don't care if you just want to bang other people and I'm not cool with it. Like I don't, I literally don't care the reasons. I was like, if we have kids, I don't care. I will never bother you. If you yeah, want, seriously, if just you don't wanna, take us out. If you don't want to be with me, it's fine. I will not put up a fight. Not I will make beg. it easy. Like we do, we're adults. I don't need to be with you. Yeah. If you don't want to be in our kids' life, I'll remove them. Like, don't yeah, worry seriously. about it. Like, just don't, please don't. And like, obviously, Brett is so, Brett's super big, muscular. He's like 6'5". He's teddy bear. super huge. But anyone who knows him is just like, that is comical for me to even feel like I need human. to say that. Yeah. Because he could, obviously, if he was a totally different person, just physically speaking, he could just squash me like a bug. But he just, Never could, he can't even squash squash real bugs real bugs yeah <laughs> never so, less his wife bug yeah exactly <laughs> so anyways we're on the same page and yeah. i definitely do think that when you get married make that very clear yeah absolutely just let him know just like you know babe you're not tied down yeah <laughs> yeah honey. yeah we're, we're married but like if you want to go just go just go i'm cool with it yeah no spray painting on the walls well that's the least of the oh well <laughs> yeah don't don't vandalize our home <laughs> I work so hard to make it a home. Anyways, that was very well done. Um, disturbing story, but thank you for covering it. Hey, thanks for listening. Yeah, no problem. Just sweating. Sweat, I was going to say sweating my balls. <laughs> sweating my butt off is what I'm doing. Well, it's, it's a like warm a one. A million down here. degrees in here. Yeah, it's cooking like an easy bake oven. Yeah. All right. Well, love you. Love you too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram at crimebarpodcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Anna Katharina. We'll see you next week.